My name's Tony, if we haven't met. Uh, it's good to see you. You up in the balcony up there, I see you. Welcome. Uh, it's fun to be with you this morning. Did you guys know that people have been meeting in this building or on this land for 129 years? And I think that this break that we just had was actually the longest break of worship on this space of land, other than maybe in 1910 when this building burned down. Uh, I think this was the longest gap when people were not praying and singing songs and listening to sermons in this space. So I am just so glad to be here with you today. On that first Sunday when they gathered, there were 24 people. I think we have a few more than that today, but whoever is here, it's awesome to be with you. And if you're at home, we're excited to be together today in spirit, worshiping Jesus and looking into the scriptures. Now, one thing I just want to say this morning is we don't have kids ministry. And so I just ask if you're a kid that you just feel like you can be a kid in this space. I am grateful that you are here, and if you're a little bit loud, if you drop a toy, if you need to say something to your parent, we get it, and there's tons of grace in this space. Also want to let you know, if as a parent you're having a hard time, we set up in the basement a TV with speakers and everything, so if you want a little space where your kids can move a little bit, there's a little more freedom down there if that's helpful, just so you know. Now for the last three weeks, we've been going through the book of Ruth. Now, I encourage you, if you haven't tuned in with us over the last little bit, I encourage you to take a look because there's a lot of context. Right now, we're in Act 3 or Chapter 3 of the book of Ruth, and a lot's gone on so far. Chapter 1 is kind of like, or Act 1 is returning empty. This is Naomi. She goes to, Bethlehem, or goes to Moab, comes back to Bethlehem, and she says, you know, I am coming back empty. I left with family, and now they've all passed away for the most part, except for Ruth, who's stuck with her. She's returning empty. Act two, or chapter two, is about this kindling or growing hope. Right? So there's this little bit of hope that's on the rise as Ruth is welcomed by Boaz, and they experience this kindness and welcome. She's in the fields for five or six weeks, and act three begins... After five or six weeks, and we'll call it a big risk, right? It's during this time of five or six weeks that Naomi almost certainly is hoping and wondering whether Ruth will find a place of protection and security. Her mother-in-law, Ruth, feels like she's kind of obligated. She feels responsible for caring for her. And for Naomi, right, protection equals marriage, right? Marriage is about survival in the ancient world. Becoming a widow often meant destitution and alienation. So Naomi's kind of hoping maybe that something's going to happen with Boaz, this kind guy who's in the field, this landowner. He's kind of hoping maybe something will happen. He's both a relative and possibly a redeemer. If you remember at the end of chapter 2, right, we talked about this idea of a redeemer. I don't know if you remember that word. But it's really important in the book of Ruth. Now, a little bit of Israel family law is really important to understand at this point. So, family law in Israel. There's this thing called a redeemer or a goel. You maybe have heard of it if you've studied the book of Ruth. Now, what a goel does is this. They're responsible for the well-being of a relative, and it comes into play when a relative is in distress and can't get themselves out of it. But this is the thing. There's five applications of the goel in the Old Testament. Now, tolerate me for a second. You're like, oh my gosh, 
It's, you know, Mosaic family law, but it's kind of important. One, uh, the goel can ensure the hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan, right? So if a family all dies, they can buy the property so it stays within the clan. Two, they can maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying them back from slavery if they've sold themselves into it. Three, they can track down and execute murderers of relatives, right? So this is sort of like a revenge option. I think there should be a slide of this. Number four, uh, you should be able to receive restitution on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. So they can go and get restitution as the goel on behalf of a relative. Or five, they can ensure that justice is served in a lawsuit involving a relative. Now I want you to think of these five options and now think of the story we are in. We are thinking about a widow being claimed or sort of redeemed by someone, and what you'll notice is it doesn't appear on this list of five. What you have to do at this point, and I think what Naomi is maybe doing in her head, is she's now combining it with Deuteronomy 25, which is sort of another family law practice. Deuteronomy 25 is this. If your brother passes away and he was married to a woman, and that woman and him did not have a kid, then you marry your brother's former wife, now a widow, in order to carry on the family line, okay? Now again, that doesn't apply to Ruth either. But if you apply the spirit of Deuteronomy 25 with this idea of the Redeemer, maybe you have a winning package in the ancient world where you can convince someone like Boaz to marry someone like Ruth. And likely this is what is going on in Naomi's head as Ruth is out in the fields for those five or six weeks and she's scheming and thinking about a way of how does she get security for this woman she loves for Ruth in this season as they are incredibly fragile in their own independence. So it's been five or six weeks and this is how Act 3 begins. Act 3, Scene 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter and I should not, should not seek rest. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lay down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, I, I remember when I first started thinking about teaching on this passage, I was like, here we go. Right? Now you're in this really interesting cross-cultural moment trying to figure out what is going on here. But this is Naomi's plan, right? So she goes up to Ruth, and she's like, hey, isn't it my role to protect you and to help you? Like, isn't that my role? Right, you, you sacrificed everything to follow me from Moab to Bethlehem. I'm your mother-in-law. This is my role, isn't it? And, and you did end up in Boaz's field, and remember, he is our relative. Now, it's hard to imagine at this point that she hasn't shared some of her musings, right, about Deuteronomy 25 and the rule of Goel, because remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's not from Israel. She doesn't know Israel's family law. So 
Naomi's going to have to teach her, okay, what are the ins and outs here? How does this apply to her? And during this five to six week period, Naomi's been paying attention. She's been watching, what do they do each day? And she notices that Boaz goes to the threshing floor each night. Likely it's on a rocky hilltop. The reason it's rocky is so when the barley falls to the ground, it like, you can actually gather it up and it's just not mixed up in the dirt, right? And then it's on a hilltop because the wind blows in the hilltop. So when you thresh it, it blows the straw, but the barley falls on the rock. Also, they would sleep on a hilltop because they didn't want either animals or robbers to come in and take what they had just harvested. So they're on a hilltop at night, sleeping with it. And then Naomi gives Ruth some instructions. She says, all right, get ready. Take a bath, put on perfume. And then she tells her to put on a cloak. Now, if you're like me and you read this, you just like read straight over this. You're like, okay, um, yeah, wash, anoint, cloak, check, and you just keep going. But there's actually a lot going on here. First, a cloak. Exodus 22 talks about the cloak as the garment of the poor. And they would use it often as a blanket at night. So what happens, she's going to put on her cloak, and now she's going at night to the threshing floor. She's going to need a blanket. She's saying, hey, bring your cloak slash blanket along so that you're not cold at night. Two, some theologians and scholars think this is an illusion that's happening, and there's biblical precedent I'll get to in a minute, right here about Ruth's attire and her widow's attire specifically. A lot of people think at this point, Ruth is still wearing widow's clothes as she is in the fields. So she's wearing her widow's garb, which communicates to everyone that she's still in mourning and she is not ready to move on. Now, what you start to notice if you actually look at the biblical arc, you start to see this almost exact wording happens in the life of David. David in 1 Samuel is in mourning. This is 1 Samuel 12. He's in mourning, and this transition from being in mourning to not being in mourning involves three things. First thing he does, he washes himself. The second thing he does, he puts on perfume. The third thing he does is he puts on his cloak. Exact same word. So likely what she is saying is, hey, I want you to transition from mourning and mourning attire. Now put on your normal clothes that you can wear at night so that when Boaz sees you, he knows that you've transitioned from a posture of mourning to maybe being ready for something else. Next, Naomi tells her to go to the threshing floor and kind of hide out a little bit. My kids are really into hide-and-seek right now. And so it's like, okay, just find a good hiding place. I don't know if you have children. Children, if they are given enough time, find the best hiding places ever. Like, it's unbelievable. And I imagine, right, over the last few weeks, Naomi and Ruth have kind of scouted it out. Like, they know the good spots. So she goes and hides. So she's able to see where Boaz goes to sleep because it's dark out. You can't just show up in the night and be like, oh, there's Boaz, right? You're in the middle of the country. And she says, okay, when you get up there and you see where he's sleeping, he's asleep, right? Uncover his feet, right? Because what presumably that's going to wake him up because now the cold air is going to be on his feet. Simple enough, right? Well, really not at all. I remember when I proposed to my wife, I remember how anxious I was. I remember I had the whole day planned. And my wife knew, like, I had the whole day planned. I had so much control over the situation. And I was, like, 99% sure that she was going to say yes. 
And I knew even if she didn't say yes, I was not going to be destitute. I would be emotionally devastated, but like I would be able to care for myself. First, for Naomi and Ruth to take this risk, right? The threshing floor is often in the ancient world a place where prostitutes approach men to see if they are interested. Right? This is obviously not what Naomi had in mind. Naomi is driven from Act 1 until now by concern to secure more security for Ruth, right? She wants long-range protection for Ruth. But Boaz could, you know, wake up with his feet uncovered and a woman lying nearby, and the nonverbal communication would be sufficiently ambiguous that he wouldn't know what she was intending to communicate, right? Would he wake up in his grogginess? And right, remember, this is the time of judges. Ethics is out the window. People are not moral at these days. And he could just be like, oh, a prostitute's here. How is he going to respond? He could interpret her actions as a prostitute, but as a noble and virtuous man, he could like kick her out and not let her glean in his field anymore. Obviously, it is a gamble. I mean, what are the chances that he will wake up and notice that she is wearing a cloak rather than the seductive garb of a prostitute, and will overlook all the irregularities of the situation. Naomi seems to have this confidence that God is behind it, and that Boaz's integrity are going to sort of keep this path rolling. Remarkably, Ruth seems to have the same faith as her mother-in-law. She's willing to try the plan, which is both delicate and potentially disastrous, which brings us to scene two. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. All right, so Ruth goes to the threshing floor. She waits, right? She waits until he's in good spirits. Now, it's unclear how long she waits there. Is it five minutes? Is it three hours? We don't know, right? Does she have to like muster up the courage to come out of her hiding place and tiptoe over to Boaz. We don't know like what the obstacles or people are in the way. My family and I have been watching uh, Top Chef Junior recently. Some of these kids are like crazy good cooks, uh, nine to 13 year olds. And at the end of every episode, like they try and cook this awesome meal. It's like pretty humbling actually as an adult watching these kids cook these like gourmet dishes. And then they have to go wait in the opposite room. 
And the kids and I are often talking about how like, man, that would be so hard to wait. Could you imagine how hard it is for Ruth to wait in this moment? She's like risking it, hiding out, waiting for these people to sleep, then tiptoeing over people that are asleep on the threshing floor so that she could get to Boaz and wake him up to uncertainty. She uncovers his feet. But the change isn't as fast as maybe she hoped, right? Because it's not too cold, I guess. So it waits until midnight before he actually wakes up. And what does he do? He doesn't recognize her right at first. He's like, who are you? And Ruth tells him. Now, normally at this point, culturally, she would have waited for her superior, right? This guy's a landowner. She's basically a walk-on, right? She would have waited for him to say something like, hey, what are you doing here? And then she would have replied. But she doesn't do that. And you notice that's actually what Naomi told her to do. She kind of goes away from Naomi's guidance at this point. And she says this, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now for us, that's like, wait, what? What do you mean? Well, there's two things going on here. One, If you remember back to Ruth 2.12, Boaz, when he first meets Ruth and he's heard about her courage to journey with Naomi, he says this, the Lord repay, repay you for what you have done, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Right, so he's already made this allusion to her taking refuge under the wings of Yahweh, embodied in the person of Boaz. And now she's riffing off of that saying, yep, here I am. I'm coming to take refuge under Yahweh's wings, but specifically under yours as an Israelite, as a kinsman and a redeemer. Two, at that time, it was sort of an idiom for marriage, for someone who spreads one's wing over another. So this is like a cultural idiom of, hey, will you marry me? She wants Boaz to marry her and redeem her. She wants Boaz to see, right, that the principle of the goel and Deuteronomy 25, if you kind of merge them, the spirit applies to her. He's a good man. Block, uh, in the New American Commentary, writes, the lives of genuinely good people are not governed by laws, but character in the moral sense of right and wrong. For Boaz, Yahweh's covenant with Israel provides sufficient guidance for him to know what to do in this case. Obviously, Boaz gets it, right? Instead of chasing her off as a prostitute, he blesses her. May you be blessed by the Lord, verse 10, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. Now, each week over the last few weeks, we've talked about this word kindness, and it's translated as hesed in Hebrew, right? So this word has all kinds of nuance in Hebrew, and it's not really hard to translate in English, right? It's like steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy. There's all kinds of layers here. And he's saying your first act of kindness, which was your kindness to staying with Naomi, You could have gone back to Moab, but instead you risk everything to accompany your aged mother-in-law to love her. And now he's saying this last act, this last of profound courage, right, to join, to take the risk, to come out into the threshing floor with him. She's saying, man, this is even greater than the first. He's so impressed, he actually gives her the same title that the narrator gives him 
at the beginning of Ruth 2. Ruth 2 begins with the narrator saying that Ruth is, or Boaz is a worthy man. And now he says to her, you are a worthy woman. And he isn't the only one to have noticed it. Over the last five to six weeks, she has proved herself to be a woman of character in Bethlehem. But then Boaz says this, right? He says, but, and you have to a moment, imagine in that moment, her heart drops. It's like, she, he's, she's like, yes, this is gonna work. And then he's like, but, there's actually someone else that's before me in line. Have you ever like really wanted something to happen? And then it just like falls through the ground? Yesterday, I had to go up to Gilroy to buy a piece of metal. It's a long story. Anyway, I can't buy that metal anywhere around here. So I call them on the phone, I check on their website, and then I start the hour-long drive up to this little metal shop in Gilroy to get this piece of metal. I show up, I'm about to get out of my car, and there's a little piece of paper written on the door that says, closed on Saturday. I'm like, you could have told me on the phone. You could have changed your website. But no, I have to drive all the way up here to find a little sign and right in my heart drops in a tiny fraction of a way. If you can even imagine, right, how devastated Ruth would be in that very moment. Wait, what? All these expectations and then this profound disappointment. Right, but then he kind of maybe sees it in her face. You know, she's sitting on the barley and falls off or whatever it is. He tells her, don't worry. I'll protect you. If this guy won't redeem you, I will. And he tells her to stay the night, which brings us then to scene three. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before, before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, I want you to go back for a second. Have you ever spent a night tossing and turning in anxiety and stress about what would happen the next day? Have you? No one? Just me? I want you to imagine what is going through their heads, right? Ruth is laying in the midst of a group of people on a threshing floor, worried about if anyone's going to notice her, worried about what the next day is going to bring. Is this other guy going to do something? What's going to happen? Boaz is sinking there like, how am I going to do this? He's coming up with a scheme, and Naomi is at home wondering what is going on. I don't imagine any of them slept all that well that night. When they wake up in the morning, right, they get up so early that no one even recognizes Ruth. Now, they don't want any rumors to spread. But Boaz, he gives her more barley, and what we learn is that this is actually for Naomi. Now, as Naomi's legal guardian, he may have intended it as sort of a bride price, which in the ancient world was simply a way of saying, 
It's like a promise to prepare for the wedding in good faith. It's like, hey, trust me. Like, I'm good for it. Maybe like a ring, you know. It's something of signaling, like, I'm invested. And this seems to be the way that Naomi interprets it. And Naomi says to Ruth, or Naomi just knows that Boaz won't rest right until they're taken care of. And that's the end of scene three. Now, the thing that's interesting about this story, as I was trying to think of, like, how do you, how do you relate this to everyday life? Right? Like, this is such a contextual, cross-cultural story that is so specific to one time, right? And we're talking about it, and it's like, as we've talked about in Ruth, like, so where is God in this picture? Right? Where is God? Right? In this, do we talk about Right? Do we talk about Ruth and the risk she takes and the courage and how that relates to our life? Well, we kind of talked about that, right? right? That's kind of like our focus on week one. We've also talked about Boaz's willingness, right, to honor the spirit, or the, Boaz's willingness to honor Ruth, right, as she came into the fields, and here he's honoring the spirit of the law. But as I sort of thought and prayed about it, I think one of the ways this text speaks into our story is actually the role of hope in the life of Naomi, as it stretches from act one through scene three. If you think about it, act one, Naomi is depressed. She's bitter. She's mad at God. She's experienced profound loss. She comes back into Bethlehem and people are like, hey, is it Naomi? And she's like, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. She says, call me Mara. I am bitter. They arrive in Bethlehem. And I don't know, Naomi, interestingly, is the driver of chapter one. She, has, she is like totally the dominant person driving the plot. Chapter two, act two, Ruth drives the plot. Naomi doesn't say to Ruth, hey, go glean. My impression is Naomi is depressed. She's bitter, she's frustrated, she's not sure what to do, so what does Ruth do? Ruth initiates and says, hey, I want to go glean. I want to go and see what we can do, right? And what happens? She goes in the field, Boaz cares for her, and she comes back, and this is the moment, the first moment in the story, when Ruth, or Naomi, actually experiences a little bit of hope. Maybe God hasn't abandoned us. Right? The Hesed of God is still alive in the person of Boaz. Right? And then it kind of takes five or six weeks for this hope to grow. As she sees the faithfulness of God through Boaz to Ruth, and she's like, oh, it's growing. Now she's starting to develop a plan. She's starting to dream. So that by the time we get to Act 3 in this threshing floor incident, she is willing to take a big risk for her family, because her hope has grown. And then we get to the end of Act 3, she is standing beside Ruth saying, it's going to be okay, just watch. Watch how, Ruth, how God is going to work through Boaz. Man, I am so confident, just wait. By the end of today, it's going to all be solved. I mean, can you see that transformation? Notice that it is only when Naomi becomes more hopeful after Ruth's first day in the field that she begins to have dreams and plan. 
It is an internal change of hopeful disposition that changes the way she acts in the world. Fundamentally, from a bitter and passive place to a more active and imaginative place. She's the one who plans this whole thing. She is the mastermind of Act 3. And I guess as you come into this room, as we're journeying through the book of Ruth, I just wonder where you are in that process yourself. What stage of Naomi's process do you relate to? Do you come into the room bitter and angry at God? There's so much going in our world. Like It would make sense if people came in thrown off and bitter and frustrated and mad and just confused and wondering where God is in the midst of it. Is that where you come into the room this morning? Or do you come in maybe with a little bit of hope? It's like day one in the field, you have a little bit of hope in you. Or are you down the road? Are you just like planning and dreaming and scheming because God, you're just confident that God is gonna work so you feel like you can take risks. Like where are you in that process? Do you know? Take a second. And if you were to locate yourself on that spectrum, where would you say you are this morning? Because the thing is, wherever you are on that spectrum, I think what the scriptures and what Ruth in particular are trying to tell us is that God is faithful wherever you are at in that journey. Right? God is faithful to Naomi as she is bitter and angry and frustrated and blaming him. He actually answers her prayer in bitterness and anger and brings her to the very place where her prayers get answered. God is faithful, right? God is the one who gives her the rumor, the gossip mill, right? In in the fields that she's gleaning in Moab so that she knows to come back to Bethlehem because there's food, right? God is the one who brings Ruth into the field of Boaz so that Naomi's prayer can be answered, right? God is the one who is consistently faithful. And what we see in the scriptures as a whole, right, is this is not an isolated example. The book of Ruth is one among many. Consider the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. Through that process, what happens, right? He ends up in charge in Egypt so that he can help his family and all of Egypt later on. And when he meets his brothers, at, towards the end of his life, he says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, right? While the brothers acted evil against him, while Joseph is thrown into prison, he is struggling. Most certainly he is bitter and depressed and frustrated in the midst of it. God is working behind the scenes to be faithful to Joseph, even though he is in a hard place. Right, Paul riffs on this in chapter eight of Romans. For we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right, no matter where you are in that process, bitter, a little bit of growing hope or this robust overflowing hope, God is faithful. Now I was trying to think of like where you are in that process, what would be like a helpful step? You know, I would say if you are bitter or frustrated this morning, I think one of the things we learn from the story of Ruth is that we need to be honest. 
And I think one of the hardest things when we're bitter and we're depressed and we're frustrated, often what we do is isolate. What does Naomi do though? People are like, hey, Naomi, hey, pleasant one. She's like, no, I'm bitter. She's honest. And she seems to be honest to God too. God, your hand is against me, is what she says. Are we willing to be honest in our struggles with other people? Two, one of the things that happens when we go from a place of depression or struggle or bitterness, whatever that is, to a slightly hopeful posture is one of the things when we're in that place of bitterness, we're in the cave, we're in the darkness, and we just start to come out, is often we lose sense of our own dreams. We often lose sense of what do we really want? Right? I don't think it's a coincidence that Naomi goes from a place of bitterness and then it takes her five or six weeks to come up with a plan of how to like move forward, how to care for someone. She needed to figure out, what do I want? What's going on here? How do I dream? And you need hope to do that. You know, when Jesus first called uh, disciples in the gospel of John, the first thing he says to them is not come and follow me. He says, what are you seeking? And I just wonder, you know, if you're in that process, what are you seeking? What is God's invitation to you? The faithful God is calling to you. What is his invitation to you? What is the dream he is giving to you that you can walk into, right, as Naomi did? Right, and then as hope grows, what we see is that Naomi goes from, you know, bitter to slightly hopeful, right, to then this robust hope. And what does she do? She leverages that hope to help others. She's concerned about getting Ruth protected. I think so often in our culture, when we get to that place of, oh, robust hope and happiness and we feel great, we just start focusing on ourselves. And now we're just sort of defending ourselves and our little castle that we've built, but that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is bitterness, right, that leads to honesty with God and others which then does lead to a process of, God, what do you want? Of listening and discerning, God, where are you inviting me to follow? Which then leads to running down that road, which almost always includes loving and leveraging it on behalf of others. That's what Naomi does, right? By the end of act three, she is just saying, you know, she's like, she is like her own little uh, mother hen with her arms around Ruth, like, hey, it's gonna be okay. Boaz is going to work this out today. And I just, I guess I wonder for you today, as we enter into our second set of worship, and the worship team can come up, is like where you are at in that process. Right? One of the reasons we have worship after we have a sermon is so that, right, we can, in the presence of God, listen to God's speaking voice to us no matter where we are at in that process along the journey. What does he have to say to you this morning? If you're in a place of bitterness, what does it look like for you to be honest with him? If you're in a place of barely hoping, what does it look like to respond to his question, what are you seeking? And if you're in a place of overflowing hope, what does it look like to use that on behalf of those who are struggling? Those who might need your, your privilege, your power, your gifts and skills in this season. Just pray with me. Lord God, we just ask in this moment that you would take this 
cross-cultural passage, this moment in salvation history, and you would make it alive and real for us today. God, speak to us wherever we are at in this journey. God, through the book of Ruth, the story of a few brave and courageous women as they try and journey to both protect themselves and seek your face. God, speak to us in this moment. God, speak to our hearts and speak to our minds that we might know you and hear your voice. In our bitterness, bring comfort. In our growing hope, God, bring light. God, as as we grow in hope and direction, God, would you give us the courage to risk on behalf of others? God, that you might be glorified in all that we do.